Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Deep Dive Books podcast. Today, we will be discussing an essay from Emil Chioran's book, The Temptations to Exist, printed in 1964. Emil Chioran was a philosopher, aphorist, and essayist from Romania, who wrote in both French and Romanian. His writing is renowned for its style, aphorisms, and persistent philosophical pessimism. The name of the essay is Dealing with the Mystics. Emile begins the essay by criticizing our compulsive need to look for rational systems of thinking in mystical texts. These are texts that are designed to appeal to faculties outside of reason. Sentiments and attitudes of an author cannot solely be understood through the application of reason. The need to both impose rational order and rational unity in a text only diminishes its enigmatic playfulness. When we read Angelus Silesius, a German priest and mystic, God is presented through an array of contradictory qualities, moods, and sentiments. The paradoxical tension that is created is what helps us understand and possibly even experience the sacramental nature of things. God in a mystical text is presented in so many aspects that it is difficult to identify the true one. For these aspects are reflections of the subjective states of the author. Forcing rational unity onto a mystical text is to drain its capacities for personal illumination. The theologian and scholar are appalled by the poetical and paradoxical insanities in the mystical text. They fight to compress the meaning of the text into a system of ideas. They are what Emile calls manics of rigor, and they simply cannot understand that for the mystic, the idea of God is always incomplete, one constantly changing against the weight of personal experience. Take the example of death as expressed by Silesius. In one section, it is associated with evil, and in another section, it is associated with good. Death is always in a state of becoming within us. It is a question that is always open to interpretation. To insist on an exact point of view is to have missed the point that mystics experience neither their ecstasies nor their disgusts within the limits of a definition. No moment of excitation, hysteria, or de despondency is the same. The identity of words cannot relay to us the inner experiences of what it means to be a human being. As Emile puts it, there are a thousand perceptions of nothing and only one word to translate them. The mystic is aware of the limitations of language when it comes to conveying his experiences. By purposefully combining imagery, sensibility, and sensation through incomprehensible juxtapositions, the mystic rebels against the incarceration of experience by language and communicates with us through an imagination that has found its escape from reason.
There is a sort of contemporary cynicism that we bring to our readings of the mystic states Emil. We see them as rather pathetic, as people who lost the instinct to apprehend reality realistically, people who were miserably broken by sorrow and ultimately embraced helplessness in a hapless world. This could not be further from the truth, states Emil. The saints are people who fought for faith and attacked God head on. There is nothing weak about an individual who wishes to appropriate heaven for himself. It may be completely irrational and incomprehensible to us, but for Emil to see in it a weakness of will is to make an incredibly stupid and arrogant error. Few people can hold the incredible tensions that gentleness, proselytism, evangelism, servility, and radicality generate. The historical energy of the Reformation, states Emile, found its expression through the instrumentalization of these tensions. In the case of Germany, it provided an entire set of peoples the spiritual momentum to individualize. The intellectual drama between man and God is the backdrop to finding individual and collective expression. And far from religious sentiment shackling it, it liberates and throws the question of freedom in the most radical of ways out into the world. The mystic turns towards the intemporal, the great holding pattern of the spiritual instinct and seizes a form of space and time that attests only to the spectacular madness of his conviction and will. The interior brilliance of such an instinct is different, qualitatively different, from what Emile termed the doctrines of decadence. These are systems of thought that render the absolute as a sort of far-flung cosmic event, too removed and too remote from the commerce of human experience. Emile sees such doctrines as decadent because they can do nothing to energize the human will and in fact induce sterility of action in its adherence. One of the great disasters for Emile was for the church to sanitize the lives of these mystics to hold them up as models. This sapped the anarchical vitality of these saints and turned them into figures of pristine exemplification. There is though, argue, argues Emile, nothing pristine about these mystics. And to sanitize their lives in this way ensures that they become extensions of a derelict doctrine of decadence. Emile calls these mystics a phenomena of nature. By this, he means that every adversity in the life of a mystic was seen as a sort of excess, an opportunity to elevate oneself above the biological limitations or urges of hunger, sleep, and sex. This is a true technology of liberation, unlike the mechanical technology of our age, which seeks to use implements and devices artificially to transcend the biological limitations of man. This is different from the mystic's technology of liberation, which was to use the body against the body 
to strengthen mind and spirit through an absolute immersion into its terrors, fragilities, and limitations. This is very unlike the mechanical technology of liberation, which does not ask us to experience terror or frailty in any form or fashion. The whole idea is to escape from it. The idea of mystics being weak is an arrogant one to Emil. Few can be found who can emulate the ferocity of discipline, and there are very few people who possess their quotient of inner strength. We must not think that these were people who strove to practice the virtues of equilibrium. No, argues Emil. They practice the virtues of disequilibrium, where we strive to protect the consistency of our ego. They strove to wound it and subject it to punishments and humiliations so extreme, well, it surpasses even the most perverse of imaginations. They believe that God owed them everything, his glory, his mercy, his eternity. All their suffering was a propitiation or offering to take what they demanded. This is certainly incompatible with the benign and pathetic gentleness that institutional depictions of mysticism would suggest to us. People who were willing to hurtle themselves into an abyss of complete destruction may be mad and inconsistent when seen through our contemporary culture of reason. If we are honest though, we cannot in good faith continue to see these saints and mystics as pathetic and pitiful. Mad maybe, but not pathetic. If we do, we are possibly looking for a way to justify the incredible diminishment of will that modern culture has instilled in us. We are small people with small goals, small minds, fatigued with a false sense of success. The egotistical depictions of our intelligence are completely disproportionate to whatever we believe we have achieved individually. It is all too easy to assume a position of arrogance in the modern age. If we are honest, though, we will find that if we crack open the shell of the modern human being, there is nothing close to the seething energy or savagery of will possessed by the historical saint or mystic. Beneath the husk of the modern personality, there is nothing close to conviction or will, just a sludge of impressions, images and sounds, effluvium that throws out the debris of half-digested cultural products into the disposal site that we call a personality in the modern age. Is it not ironic, then, that it is the mystic who is considered to be small and pathetic, and not modern man? Who is more paralyzed by the inner anxieties of nothingness and meaninglessness? Us or the mystic? Emile states that the answer is clear. All too clear for us to be able to trifle ourselves with such an insignificant question again. The sense of nothingness experienced by the philosopher and the mystic are different. For the mystic, nothingness is a call, a radical experience, uh, which in the words of Emile, encourages a luminous annihilation beyond the limits of thought. 
there is a wreck of consciousness experienced by the mystic. They destroy themselves only to regain themselves. This to the mystic is the necessary condition for transcendence. Here the mind is abolished, its anxious products thrown onto a burning heap of conditioned reflexes and social illusions. They remake God in the image of this great wreck. Everything in the world around the mystic becomes denatured. Its naturalness and givenness is stripped, and in its place is implanted significations of unity. The great realization of truth after a wreck of consciousness for the mystic is that nothing is, but everything is. An amusing point made by Emile is that the mystic is not only skeptical of any outside interference that seeks to regulate his relations with God, but is also skeptical of God meddling in his interpretation of faith and action. This is someone who barely tolerates Jesus. The mystic is someone who loves to challenge the God of the commons, i.e., the public conception of God, and it will constantly be the subject of his wit, sarcasm, and ridicule, which is why he often runs into trouble. Without the antagonism that the mystic provides, states Emile, the structure of our collective faith would wither and collapse. The heresy of the mystic is what rehabilitates faith. The doctrine of faith animates itself through the heretical challenges of the mystic, he is a far better provocateur against doctrinal faith than any external adversary or unbeliever, for he uses consecrated language to disrupt it. The mystical phenomenon for Emile has many pretenders, people who try to replicate the intensities of mysticism, but end up becoming preposterous caricatures. The pretender creates mystical art for human appreciation. Human appreciation is the end of his ambition. The mystic creates art for appreciation elsewhere. He is looking to create an art that can escape or survive the, dis the, the disintegration of his experiences. The poet revels in the world of surfaces. They revel in the world where they can witness and describe the unfolding of creation and decay in the world of time. The mystic extinguishes himself through experiences that reflect the divine origin of creation and destruction outside of time. Emile cites the harrowing experiences of Margareta Ebner and Angela of Foligno, nuns and mystics who experience terrifying and sublime visions. Angela chillingly states, I contemplate in the abyss into which I see I have fallen, the glut of my iniquities. I seek to no avail how to discover and manifest them to the world. I would walk naked through cities and squares 
meat and fishes hung from my neck and crying out, here is the vile creature. This is the sort of intensity, Emile argues, most of us will never come to possess, for we have become too spiritually and existentially small. Saints are not meditative souls, says Emile. They are too unbridled and too fierce a people to stop at meditation. Descending into the foundation of things requires more than meditation. It requires an inextinguishable passion for getting to the root of life, the sort of passion that was snuffed out a long time ago in the modern personality. Where there is a passion to deliriously ascend and descend, the terrorizing and audacious scales of hell and heaven for the mystic, there is an enfeebled and life-denying nihilism in the modern personality. The call is clear to Emile. The restrictions of good sense must give way to the abandon of the saints. We must fling ourselves to the darkness of the light with incensed impatience, an impatience with the utter smallness of self that we anxiously carry the weight of, our need to assign limits to endeavors before they have been, before they have even been undertaken, and the tedious social certitudes of life that stifle movement towards anything of personal or public significance. We do not even know how to experience madness, Emile states, for the modern person's idea of madness is far too measured. We have forgotten how to ruin and annihilate ourselves in the pursuit of anything passionate. We need the intractable pride of the saints, states Emile, one that understands wickedness all too well and cunningly sublimates it to achieve grace. The saints, states Emile, are giants. They shatter their bodies and their souls to abandon what we spend our whole lives miserably preserving. It is not a belief in our superiority that compels us to laugh and see the saints as, well, rather ridiculous and primitive people. No, it is the fear that we have lost the courage to devote ourselves to anything that even remotely resembles a unifying purpose. Emile states that the saint is a monster, a demon, but in the service of good. They suffer and love to suffer, but unlike our egotistically induced suffering, they use suffering to acquire a blinding inner freedom. Saints are all too aware of the arrogance and indulgence that comfort creates. Too much of it and any ambition to achieve the extraordinary is extinguished. What is the ambition? An act of supreme cosmic arrogance. The saint seeks to penetrate the secret of all creation and substitute himself for the divine. It is madness born of monstrous ambition. The kind, Emile says, that we cannot begin to understand because we have become so greatly reduced in spiritual and psychological stature. Emile calls the saints aberrations, distortions of nature so grotesque that we are compelled to sanitize their lives of their madness and turn them into benign idols of piety.
for Emil, the modern man, if he or she is to find any sort of salvation, we must begin to reclaim our monstrous nature. We must learn to live again with cosmic passion. We must ascend into the abyss to fall into heaven. We must look to the mad saints for inspiration. We must not be afraid of embracing the madness of belief. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope to see you again next time. Cheers from all of us at the Deep Dive Podcast.